There was a line in, I think, the second or third song that you did. It says, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and rich in love. And when you started singing that, I thought about that verse, and I thought about in the context of marriage. It, it would be a great way to sum up this, marriage, uh, this message. To be gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, and rich in love. Um, so thank you for that song. There's another line in that song that says, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far God has removed our transgressions from us. Amazing verse. And I thought about that line and I thought, what about adultery? As far as the east is from the west, that's how far God has removed our transgressions from us. Ten Commandments say you shall not commit adultery, and I must admit this was a sermon I did not really want to speak on. I was very tempted to pass it off, to have someone else uh, take it. Uh, but I feel that God wants me to, uh, to speak, and I will admit right up front that this message is as much for me and maybe more for me than for anyone else. And I want to be careful this morning, I want to say it right out front, that I want to be careful not to speak judgment into anybody's life and to respect the fact that there are personal stories within this congregation that I do not know, but that might be relevant to this, and I just want to say I want to be careful not to speak judgment, but I want to speak encouragement this morning. I thought of uh, how I could avoid actually speaking on the topic the message could take several directions, and uh, in the Old Testament, quite often, there's reference to the nation of Israel playing the adulterer by forsaking the one true living God and opting for the gods of the nations around them. So I could talk about spiritual adultery. Or I thought, well, I can talk just about on God's general vision uh, for sex. The Bible does speak against what our culture might define as casual, recreational, non-committal sex. The prodigal son in the New Testament, cashed in on his inheritance and squandered it, it says, in loose living. My guess is that probably included casual sexual activity. 
Romans 13, 13 says, because we, that's you and I, me, those within the church, because we belong to the day, we must live decent lives for all to see. Don't participate in the drunkenness of wild parties or in sexual promiscuity and immoral living or in quarreling and jealousy. So I could have focused on that. But I really knew that what God wanted to to talk about is kind of exactly what this verse says. Do not commit adultery. And so this morning I want to talk about marriage. It is essentially addressed to those of us who are married. It's about God's design for marriage and sex. It's about God's definition of marriage. And culturally, we are swimming against the current on this one. But marriage is God's idea. One woman, one man. It is God-ordained. Which is why marriage is a union that's often expressed within the context of words such as commitment, vows, and covenant. And the strength of a marriage relationship is found in a couple's commitment to those vows. In sickness and in health in good times or in bad. It's a relationship that has a covenant quality to it and not an opt-out clause. This morning I want to take this command and encourage us to embrace God's vision for marriage. And I want to say we need to honor, we need to nurture, we need to celebrate, we need to protect our marriages, that they are worth fighting for on so many levels, that marriage is God's idea, and marriage is God's ideal for us as his creation. If you want to live a long and healthy life, apparently three things are necessary. Eat well, exercise, and get married. Now, I must say the first two remind me of something my doctor quite often reminds me. It's important to eat well. It's important to exercise. Uh, But I had never, ever heard anybody say, and you should get married. Actually, new research shows that getting married and Staying married, which I think is critical. Maybe the best thing you can do for a longer, healthier life. So widely acknowledged, in fact, are the benefits of marriage on health. That there is a case to be made for it as a major public health issue in a society that is increasingly moving away from marriage and toward cohabitation. Which surprisingly, doesn't seem to offer the same benefits. Quite simply, 
If we could package it in a pill, marriage would qualify as a wonder drug. You need to know that those comments were not from a Christian journalist. They were not even from a Christian perspective. This is actually secular science speaking. It's straight from the McLean's Magazine, January 13, 2014. I have that at home. If any of you would ever like to read that article, I would be more than happy to give it to you. Quite simply, and this is amazing, that if we could package it in a pill, marriage would qualify as a wonder drug. You know, when I visited Barry and Marlene last night, some of the truth of that statement is evident in the hospital room where a wife can support a husband or a husband can support a wife. And medically speaking, it can have incredible results. And in a society where living together is accepted and uh, even encouraged. I would say that there are many in common law arrangements who yearn for the security that is expressed in the exclusivity of marriage, publicly expressed before family and friends. And I remember teaching with um, two young people, uh, likely both in their early 20s, both of whom had been living with their partners in arrangements that would have been seen as committed, monogamous relationships, yet they were so excited about formalizing their relationship publicly, having a real wedding, and announcing to the world that this was meant to be for the long haul. And I thought, you know, that excitement, and these people were certainly not people of faith, but that excitement, I believe, reflects the heart of God for marriage. And it's a human response to what God intended marriage to be, to be exclusive, to be meant for the long haul. It is God's idea, and it is God's ideal. I believe marriage was meant to be the basis upon which society is built. It was meant to provide a helpmate, someone to share life with, someone to enjoy as a companion and sexual partner. It is a social structure through which children are to be born and raised, that children are meant to be nurtured within the context of a loving home where mom and dad are committed not only to each other, but committed to raising their children. It's God's ideal. Working for many decades in the classrooms of Kelowna, what often made one classroom, I'll just say, just a, a treat to work with, and another classroom a bit more of a struggle was often determined by the number of intact family homes represented in that classroom. And I remember at times just kind of pausing and thinking, okay, how many of these children come from a home where mom and dad are there? 
And I think in the wake of ever-increasing kind of easy separation or divorce, our culture almost casually says, you know what, don't worry about it, children are resilient. I think it's an absolute adult cop-out. It's a cop-out used by adults to dismiss or minimize what will have a long-term impact on their children. And I think if children appear resilient, it's likely because they are simply unable to express the worry or uncertainty that may fill their minds. Or maybe they assume problems at home are their fault. And it's a growing reality, even in elementary school, young minds trying to make sense of family uncertainty. So I want to say we need to protect our marriages for each other, husband and wife. We need to protect our marriages for the sake of our children. Your marriage is worth fighting for. What if you're in the middle of a lousy marriage? Do you hang on no matter what? And I would say no, that there are obviously situations, even other than adultery, where a woman may be counseled to leave an abusive spouse. But having said that, I want to suggest that virtually all marriages experience seasons when the marriage may feel lousy. For a variety of reasons, where a husband or wife might say, you know what, I don't remember signing up for this. And I want to remind us that a perfect marriage does not exist because perfect people don't exist. But a perfect marriage, I believe, in the eyes of God is one in which couples refuse to give up and choose to persevere. That struggles over sex, disagreements, or a lack of transparency in finances, those things can take a toll in a marriage. Sometimes commitment to work or professional life can cause couples to drift apart. And if you ask, well, can those things be overcome? The answer is absolutely yes. It almost always requires action of some kind. Conversation, communication. Preferably before things may surface as issues, but even if the conversation is intense, or maybe if the conversation needs wise counsel, we need to talk openly and honestly with our spouse. And he or she, husband or wife, who initiates that conversation has done something good, something needed. Conversation, even if tense, has the potential of clearing the air, has the potential of easing what you might call the quiet tension that can at times characterize our marriage. I want to say this morning, don't opt out, don't run, don't withdraw emotionally. Hang on to the vows, hang on to the covenant you declared, your marriage is worth it. 
What about adultery? There is likely no bigger enemy to marriage than adultery. It is a violation of what God intended to be beautiful. It is a breaking of trust between two people. It is a breaking of a vow. Hebrew says, keep the marriage bed pure. As I thought about that and I thought about the Bible, while there are a few biblical examples of what we might call good marriages, there are many more where lust and adultery marred even the lives and families of what we might call godly men. Solomon had 700 wives and I think 300 concubines. A truly hedonistic lifestyle. He would have needed name tags. <laughs> Yet Solomon's life deteriorated and was characterized by emptiness. David succumbed to the lust of the eyes. He committed adultery and paid dearly for it. There are many examples in the Old Testament where the marriage bed was defiled. And where man's practice distorted God's ideal. And it always had difficult circumstances. Not only for the man or the woman, but within their families. And whether it's a one-night fling that feels bad before it's over, or a long-term secret that quietly eats away at the emotional connection between a husband and a wife, adultery is destructive. It is a prime example of enjoying the pleasures of sin for a season, but living with their results for a lifetime. Not only at a personal level, the consequences reach into the lives of the next generation, our children, our children's children. Can you undo adultery? Can you somehow nullify its consequences? And the answer to that is no. But even in this area of life, confession, repentance, and forgiveness has the potential to lift burdens that may seem insurmountable. And that even in this area of life, God says with confession and repentance, I can remove that sin as far as the east is from the west. Marriage is long term. Somebody said it's a life sentence. I don't really like that phrase, but... And some have compared it to running a marathon. I think that too may be a bit of a poor analogy. I have never run a marathon. I have never even wanted to. <laughs> the training and pain seem to outweigh the rewards. But I wouldn't say that about marriage. The analogy does fit in that marriages will likely need to overcome times of pain and struggle. But the rewards of sticking with it are enormous. Not only for those who persevere, persevere but for the next generation. Many marriages have successfully survived the highs and lows of emotions. 
the highs and lows of health, the rocky road of finances, or times of sexual tension. And I recall a pastor couple who admitted that there were times in their marriage where they couldn't stand each other. Not necessarily something you expect to hear from a pastor, but there was an openness and transparency about that comment that was amazing. Yet that couple, that pastor couple, persevered and resentment, aloofness, coldness were gradually replaced with increased intimacy. Our society has made opting out of marriage pretty much mainstream. That in a me-first culture, the give and take of marriage presents at times a completely different way of looking at life. Suddenly, life is not all about me. Add children to the mix, and me time can seem almost non-existent. That there is a significant element of sacrifice within marriage. Yet there are rewards are huge for those who persevere. Those who persevere in their marriage model what may become a lasting legacy within their family. There is enormous strength to be found within the context of an extended family where fidelity is the norm. And you might say, well, you know, that's not my history, that's not our family's history. I want to say your marriage, your family, has an opportunity today to demonstrate an alternative. We are called to persevere in our faith, even while we stumble and fall. I believe God would say, persevere in your marriage, even if there are difficult times. Most of the commandments, the Ten Commandments, Jesus also referenced in the Sermon on the Mount. And when Jesus referenced this commandment, uh, he spoke very directly into the hearts of, I'm going to say this, most men. And I will not pretend to speak for women on this issue, but men, if we feel vindicated because we have not committed the act of adultery, this verse would cause most of us to squirm somewhat awkwardly. He who looks on a woman lustfully has committed adultery in his heart. Guilty. I'd have to say, yes, I have looked at other women that way. And Jesus says, you have actually committed adultery in your heart. While our sexuality does not define us, it is a powerful God-given aspect of who we are. It is to be expressed within the context of marriage, and within that context, it is to be enjoyed with freedom. Emotional distance, whatever the cause, will inevitably be expressed in physical distance. 
And instead of cleaving to your partner, you will find yourself drifting from your partner. And the absence of intimacy within a marriage opens the door to temptation of all kinds. We live in a highly sexualized culture and most of it is distorted, empty, but tempting. Emotional connection will lead to physical intimacy and it is something men dug. We need to work at. Something I need to work at. We can rail against a society that seeks to redefine what marriage is. We can preach condemnation from our pulpits and feel kind of self-righteous. Or we can make a powerful statement by our quiet but passionate commitment to honor our marriage. To protect our marriage and to nurture our marriage. At times we, I think, have a tendency to identify the voice of God as speaking only spiritual words and ignore the fact that the voice of God may often speak into very ordinary aspects of life. That God may speak the common sense that we often fail to heed. I remember using the washroom uh, at a home we were there uh, visiting and finding in the washroom a book. It was a book about marriage. I thought that's a fairly high standard of washroom literature. <laughs> and the book was a small, I think I left it there, a small collection of encouragement for marriage. It was ordinary couples, I will say, speaking practical wisdom in down-to-earth ways, which is pretty much where marriage happens. And I want to wrap up with a couple of examples from that little book. And I made a comment about common sense and about how we take care of ourselves, and one of them wrote this, in the same way, our bodies need attention. We must eat right, get plenty of rest, exercise regularly, and avoid harmful substances. Taking common sense measures to stay healthy is a precious gift we can give ourselves and our spouse. And I want to say this quote did not come from a young couple who were triathletes or long-distance runners or vegetarians. Or It came from a couple who had been married well over 50 years. A couple married, in fact, in 1942. The second little encouragement in that book said this, unfaithfulness, so adultery is more often the result of an emotional disconnection between the spouses than mere physical attraction towards someone outside of marriage. For a variety of reasons, mostly stemming from a breakdown in communication, one or both partners begin feeling unvalued, unappreciated, unloved, 
and they begin to look elsewhere to meet their emotional needs. If spouses can learn practical ways to express love for one another and meet each other's needs, the emotional connection can be reestablished and the marriage can be restored. That bit of advice came from a couple who were married in 1936. Now I think that book was published in about 2004, so it could well be that they have passed away. And I don't know if that entry spoke to their own personal experience, but it might have. And I want to say the entire little booklet, I think it, the title was Marriage is for Life. The entire booklet was written by couples who had been married for at least 50 years. And I thought about that, and I thought a little bit about Creekside, and it's, I think, amazing in a fairly, uh, fairly small congregation that we have at least five, maybe more, couples who have been married for over 50 years. In fact, we have two who have been married over 60. Norma and Vern Skog, Ben and Ricky Palma, been married 61 years. It's incredible testimony to the faithfulness of a husband and wife. I want to say that each one of us has a role in improving the quality of our own marriage. And too often we, and by we I mean men, tend to trudge along and wait for some event or some issue to trigger a conversation, or we wait for our wives to initiate a conversation. At times we may hope, well, you know, as long as our marriage looks good in public view, but yet in the same way as each one of us has our own personal and private life, we also, within marriage, have marriage that we experience apart from the public eye. In fact, that is where most of our marriage takes place. And I would say that Eva and I have had times of feeling emotionally distant or disconnected. And for that, I acknowledge my own lack of effort or not having at times the wherewithal to say, you know, we need to sit down and talk. And it has usually been Eva that has taken that initiative. But I want to say that our marriage has outlasted its challenges in spite of our own imperfections. It has come from a desire to be true to that which we committed. We sometimes say, you know, the Bible has all the answers to life's problems. It's a bit of a glib statement. Um, the Bible truly has the answers to the significant sin problem that separates us from the God who made us. But the Bible is not necessarily a marriage manual. And in the same way that we may often seek financial advice, we may seek parenting advice, we may seek vocational advice, there may also be times where we may need to seek marital advice. And I just simply want to say that your marriage is worth that conversation. It's telling, I think, that Paul compares a husband and wife's commitment to each other 
to the commitment that Jesus has for his church. That he literally gave his life for his church. Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's an example of how highly God values marriage. I do not think there could be a more powerful analogy. Jesus and his church, husband to wife. We have a church with many young families. Many busy young families. Families where pressures and stress of schedules have the potential to eat away at the intimacy of marriage. And my encouragement to you, my encouragement to all of us is to value, to work at, to protect what God saw as ideal. As with many things, our culture wants to take this and redefine it, reshape it. They want to do the same thing with with family, but God calls us not necessarily to shout out judgment, but to live out obedience. That our marriages, our homes, our families would be a powerful, clear, and living example of what God has established as his ideal. May we fight for them. May we nurture them. May we persevere. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love. And the more I think about that, that's kind of how I would encourage us to think about our marriages, to be gracious, to be compassionate, slow to anger, and rich in love. Curtis, I'll invite the team to come up. I'm just going to pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your church. I thank you for what truly is an amazing gathering of people who bow before a God who we cannot see. People, Father, who are willing to put their faith the fact that Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth for us, that he lived, he died, he rose for each one of us. And Father, this morning as we were singing, I felt that I could just sit there, and if that's all we had done this morning, spent time singing and listening to the words of those songs, it would have been good. But Father, I do thank you for your word. I thank you for the encouragement that is, that lives within it, that your word truly is living, it is active, it is meant to speak into the practical areas of our life. And Father, I just pray this morning for the marriages represented at Creekside Church. Father, would your hand be upon them? Would you protect the love between husband and wife? Father, would you give courage to those who may need to initiate a conversation? Truth is, Father, you have forgiven us much. The amazing truth of that song that as far as the east is from the west, God, that's how far you have removed our transgressions from us. 
Father, may we show that kind of commitment and love within our marriages, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.